Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kichanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu, la'asok b'divrei Torah. Ve'harevna Adonai Eloheinu, et divrei Torateka v'finu ufi, amka v'tisrael. Ve'niye anaknu, v'zetzainu, v'zetzai, amka v'tisrael, kulanu yodea shemeka velom de Torateka lishma. Baruch atah Adonai, I'd like to welcome you to Parsha Tetzave, the Game Changer. All right, so the GC series is officially underway, moving from the C class to the S class, so to speak, the sporty Maserati takeoff, let's go quickly. Um, because one of the things that has occurred is that, you know, we are... Uh, getting closer to Pesach and we're headed towards Purim this week. And, uh, you know, it's just incredible what is going on. And with all that being said, you know, we're really praying that the final redemption happens quickly and soon in our days. And you can like, just kind of feel the anticipation building up, you know, and it's like, who knows how long it'll be. Bezrat Hashem, not that much longer, but if it is, can we wait? So, as I was reading the Midrash Rabbah on this past Shabbat, I was thinking about how tired, you know, uh, tiring life is just in general, but how tired I, I feel like I feel tired. Other people that I'm around feel tired. And it's just kind of like, man, like what is the dealio with all this kind of stuff? So obviously with there being an increase of joy going on, you have to have energy for that. And one of the things about energy is that this is the light of Hashem. So when you feel full of energy, you're literally full of Hashem's light. So there is a, a wonderful rabbi of today. Uh, his name is Rabbi Pincus. And um, blanking on his last name for some reason. But anyway, the, port the important thing is the message he has. And it's about energy, and it literally comes through Torah, Avoda, which is like our heart service and our prayer, and Chesed, which is our acts of loving kindness, which obviously are the pillars of our faith, which is brought down by Pirkei Avot. But the cool thing about it is the more we increase in each of those areas, we unleash more and more light into the world through refining ourselves in these areas and refining these areas in other people encouraging others to engage in study of Torah, encouraging others to pray, encouraging others to uh, live with a godly devotion. You know, you can be devoted to Hashem in your travels. If you're big on traveling, you can do that. You can do that by things like, you know, not cutting people off on the road. Uh, when people cut you off on the road, don't like, you know, give them the finger and you know, uh, say all kinds of swear words and, and things like that. But, you know, just you can begin to daven for them right there. So you'll occur, you'll accomplish two out of the three pillars just in that moment where someone cuts you off and you'll refrain from negative behavior, even though you really want to. But because you do that, actually, you unleash more light because the sages teach that when you go through a temptation and you refrain from it, that there is a, a giant Kedusha ball, for lack of better terms, the Shomerman Midrash style, that appears over you. There's a great light, and it's just like, you must have done something that uh, destroyed and uh, accomplished and overcame 
your temptation. It's like, yeah, somebody cut me off on the road. It's like you're walking around and you're looking like a light bulb because you did that. So anyway, and then you'll also be davening, you know, not only for yourself because Hashem helped me kind of stuff. And you'll also daven for that person. Hashem, I have no idea why that person cut me off. I can come up with some ideas, but all of them are probably wrong because I have no idea what's going on outside of my own self. And how true is that? Even in our own households, we think we know our family, but we don't. You know, there's that one time where, you know, guys being married, you know, uh, you have your wife and you think you know what she's thinking. And first rule of that situation is don't think you know what she's thinking because <laughs> you'll be wrong. Like, and you'll think you're right. And it's just kind of like, no, I was totally off on that one. So, Rugashim. So I open up with all that because uh, the Captain Marvel movie that came out a while back had this beautiful phrase in it that says, higher, further, faster, which I kind of, I was like, wait a minute, what? But I kind of like it because this is what we're called to. And how in the world are we going to get beyond our tiredom? And how are we going to unleash more light into the universe if we don't go higher, further, faster? And especially if we want to hasten the redemption, because we at least have 6,000 years that the world has to exist just from a Peshat level. Uh, you can get into all the different commentaries on just the first verse of the parasha of uh, Bereshit, which is the first pasuk of Torah. Uh, you can get into that and talking about the 6,000 years of creation. You can get into Parsha Mishpatim on the Sod level, talking about why is there only six years for our servitude in the seventh year we get to go free. And that's literally the pattern of creation that 6,000 years we shall serve, we shall labor. Seventh year, we shall go free. And we know that one day is a thousand years with Hashem. So literally six days, 6,000 years. Just thinking about that in our weekly cycle, six days we work, the seventh day is the Shabbat. And it's like, how much do we look forward to the Shabbat, right? Uh, so, yeah. How are we going to go higher for the faster? Well, in the Midrash Rabbah 33.8, it brought down this whole thing in Parsha Teruma. So, Shemot, Midrash Rabbah Shemot 33.8. The insights brings down about how the Mishkan can be built by a single person. We know that the Mishkan in the Torah was built by at least 600,000 Jews. Okay, and that's that's the men above the ages of 20, you know, and uh, so we're looking at at least 600,000 people, which each of them having families and all that kind of stuff. Over a million of people, you know, like lots going on. And not to mention all of the Arab Rav, which are the people who were some of them were going to be converting into Judaism. Some of them were like, I don't know. I just want I want the good stuff, the free stuff, even though they had to go through some hard times to get there because this was life outside the cloud, which you were getting fringe benefits at that point. But you still were not inside the clouds. So inside the clouds, which is where all the amazingness was happening. But I digress. So the Mishkan can be built by a single person. Made me immediately think of Matit Yahu, the writings of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 6, 
where Yeshua says, but I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Because for all um, commentaries aside, the Mishkan was considered to be on a higher level than the temple because the um, the Kedusha, so to speak, of the Mishkan was like, I mean, it's we're talking about something that directly came from Shemaim, you know, like all of the the aspects of uh, the furnishings and the way it looks. And there's a there's a Mishkan in Shemaim, you know, and things like that. And so this all was replicated through the fire, which is the word of God and come down to earth. And it existed inside of a miniature Olam Haba. And I say a miniature Olam Haba because remember in the clouds of glory with the well of Miriam and the manna falling, you have heaven on earth. This is why we literally say that in the second paragraph of the Shema that we recite on a daily basis, at least twice a day. Where we talk about like the days of the heaven on the earth. And that literally is what life was like in the wilderness. You know, you had the rivers of living water that flowed between all the camps that uh, gave out the separation and the divisions for the tribes. And then you also had the presence of Hashem literally in our midst, like Hashem tabernacling among us in the form of the ark that housed the tablets that was in the Holy of Holies of the holy place of the Mishkan of the courtyard of the camp of the Levites in the center of all of this stuff that was going on. Then you had that there was no day or night inside the clouds because it was constantly illuminated. And one of the beautiful things that the um, Midrash says brought down, I was going to pull it out, but I'm not now just going to recite it by memory that when you went into the Mishkan, it looked like a beautiful blue starry sky, like simultaneously daytime and night at the same time, because the way of all of the hangings and the tapestries and how everything overlaid on each other. That it was like you're looking at this pure blue sky and then it's got these little sparklies that look like stars. And so it literally looked like you were under the stars when you walked into the Mishkan. Then you have this beautiful aromatic smell, which is the smell of Ghani Din, because you have the lamb's blood from the outer altar placed on the incense, which were the 11 spices of the golden altar. And that aroma, that's like the field of sacred apples. That is the smell of the clothes of Yaakov when he went in before his father Yitzhak, which smelled exactly like the altar on Mount Moriah when Yitzhak laid down his life as a sacrifice for the father, which would be Abraham, who both of them looked alike. So it was like, why is Abraham sacrificing himself? It's like, no, that's his son. Oh, so the father is sacrificing the son, but the son looks like the father? Hmm. The father is sacrificing his image. Okay, that's interesting. And it's a willing sacrifice and all that kind of stuff. And that's where Ghani Din takes place. And then you have this whole idea of the ram, which again, ram is Ayil, which rearranges to Eli, which is my God. And that ram was caught up in the, the, uh, the thorns, which was acacia wood branches. And so, you know, my God caught in the thicket and sacrificed in my place, who was basically substituting as the image of the father, as the son who laid down his life willingly. And this caused the smell of Ghani Din, 
and this broad atonement for all of the future generations and all that kind of stuff. So basic Akidah stuff, you can read this in your Siddur uh, for the morning blessings where we recite the passage of the Akidah. And so, I mean, there's all this stuff, you know, to really just kind of take into account. And I'm going to get back to my source on higher for the faster. So how can one person build a Mishkan? Well, the first thing is it says the Midrash interprets the fire of this verse as a metaphor for Torah. For the Torah is compared to fire. See Devarim 33.2 and Yermiyahu 23.29. Because all the vestments of the Mishkan came down in forms of fire and then Moshe was able to build them. The only thing he couldn't do was the menorah, which you would think, why not the ark? Because how crazy was the ark? How are you going to take a single piece of gold and make keruvim on a flat surface? And these keruvim are going to have uh, different uh, things that go on with them uh, that's sitting on top of the ark. And then with the menorah, it's this very uh, intricate tree looking thing. It's a tree of fire, like a burning bush you know, with the knobs and the bulbs and all that kind of stuff. And one of the beautiful things Dr. Sakal shared with me is an article from the Torah.com on the menorah, bringing down Philo, Nachmanides, and um, who else did he bring down? Um, Nachmanides, Philo... I'm going to get way off track because I'm trying to scroll through and look. Oh, Medrash Tankuma. Okay. But anyway, but there is an understanding brought down by Philo. It says Philo of Alexandria during the first third of the first century CE. So we're talking Mashiach Yeshua's time of being on the earth. Get you some of that. He described or it directly relates the shape of the menorah's rounded branches to the trajectory of the planets around the sun. He says that the approach or that the approach to them is from the side and the middle place is that of the sun. But to the other planets, he distributed three positions on the two sides of the lampstand in the superior group are Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars, while in the inner group, so going from the outer branches in, we're looking at Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, come in, and we're looking at the inner group, Mercury, Venus, and the moon. Philo is the first author to provide context for the rounded branches, because it's like, are they rounded branches? Are they diagonal branches? And the answer is yes, because you can find so many sources for both. And it says, this approach harchened Slika, associating them with this larger astral concerns. This approach harkens back to an association of the lamps of the lampstand with the planets that first appears in the prophet Zechariah already during the 6th century BCE, who described the five visible planets plus the sun and the moon as the eyes of Hashem. Zechariah 4.10, he does all that. So just a little drop there on the menorah. One of the other complex things about it was its meaning. 
and another one of them, especially brought down by Nachmanides, the Ramban, that this is also representative of the concealed wisdom, which is Chokma Nistar, which if you look at that word, the first letter of each word, Chet and Nun, Chet and Nun is actually the word for Chain, which is grace. So the, the wisdom is grace, which is the menorah, which is the only vestment of the Mishkan that uh, Moshe really had a hard time, you know, duplicating. And Hashem was like, all right, just take the gold, throw it into the fire, literally into the word and then outcome of this menorah, which just makes it so much more interesting that a piece of creation was thrown into the word of God and um, out came the image of Hashem's wisdom and light. So when we think about Miriam and how she received the word of God into her or basically her throwing herself into the word of God and then out comes Mashiach Yeshua from her, you know, and it's just kind of like, well, there had to be that medium of something from creation to mix with the word of God to bring forth the revelation of Hashem's hidden wisdom. And again, Adam, the first Adam, was made without the the father and the mother coming together. So why would it be any different for the second Adam being formed without the father and the mother coming together? Because the earth is considered to be a feminine um, aspect. And then, um, you know, the heavens is considered to be like a masculine. And so... When the rain comes into the earth, it's like the earth gives forth its vegetation, kind of like the the man and the woman, when they come together, they give forth offspring. So that's another thing that's brought down by Shonuf Pincus and Parashabe Hukotai. Uh, it's a beautiful drop that he did in there. But anyway, all of that to say, with this higher, further, faster uh, introduction here from Shemot Rabbah 33, Eight, when it gets into this insight, it says this. It says, Yafe To'ar, on a second explanation, suggests Moshe wondered how it was possible to construct an earthly home for God if even Shemaim and the highest of Shemaim cannot contain him. Shlomo also echoed this in 1 Kings 8.27. So the response, God said to Moshe, even one Jew can do it. For the purpose is not to create a space to hold my presence. Not a space to hold my presence, but a medium through which I can draw close to my people and benefit them with the full measure of my providence. It's not literally that we're trying to create a space for Hashem, but we're creating a medium to draw close to Hashem and for Hashem to benefit us with a full measure of his providence. I.e., though we're going to be in the world, we're not going to be of it i.e. I'm going to bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, i.e. you will be near me and I will be near you. I will go beyond the aspects of nature while remaining in nature at the same time. This is what happened at the Yom Suf, the splitting of the Red Sea. 
the Sea of Reeds. And this is also what happened every single day we were in the wilderness. How are you going to have millions of people who are out of their own provisions for food have no lack? Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out, which is, by the way, a miracle when you're trekking through the desert. I mean, how are your shoes not going to wear out? Come on now. But all of that to say, they never lacked any meals and they never went thirsty. The only times that they were hungry, the only times that they were thirsty was when they were in outright rebellion to Hashem, i.e. they forsook studying his Torah, i.e. they turned their faces away from God. That's when they complained about, we want meat. That's when they complained about, why did you bring us out here to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you wanted to bury us out here in the wilderness? All that kind of talk was just talk of rebellion. And by the way, that's what goes on inside of us when we decide to draw ourselves away from Hashem and get caught up in nonsense and get caught up in drama of all kinds. And uh, this is what leads us to sin, because only a person who's led away by a spirit of folly will be a person who sins. So we have to watch what is actually drawing us away or drawing us closer, because remember the whole thing about being the medium for which Hashem can draw close. You have to allow yourself to be constructed in that manner. And the beautiful thing about Baal HaTurim and Parsha Taruma about the verse that talks about according to the form that you were shown on the mountain, it says that whenever we get uh, identity crisis or if we get confused about how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to look like, what we, sh what we should do in a certain situation, that we have to come back to the mountain and look at the pattern that Hashem has given us. We have to re basically remake ourselves, renew our mind according to the pattern that we were shown on the mountain. So something just to take into account that we should remember. And it also says in this insight, my people or Sika, in that sense, every individual can build a Mishkan by embracing my Torah, following my ways and developing a loving relationship with me. The Midrash provides an example of special consideration God gives to those close to him by pointing to the precious gems that descended with the manna. That is the lofty pearls of wisdom that were made accessible to select saintly Jews by the angelic food that fell from Shemaim. This is another thing that's telling us about the the stones of the breastplate of the Choshen, which, by the way, I posted, uh, reposted a podcast I did on SoundCloud about this, the Choshen, the breastplate, which included the 12 stones of the tribes. You need to know those stones came from Shemaim. Those were heavenly pieces of stone. And our Shomer version of the Black Panther, who is Toshia, decided to drop kick me in the face with his vibranium foot on uh, Shabbat with a Rabbeinu Bakya saying that these were the complete stones. So the complete stone of each of those very specific stones that are in the Choshen, the breastplate, 
came from Shemaim, and not an ounce of them were lost. Because remember, they had to get etched the names of the tribes in there. And the Shamir worm, when it etched it, that there was no chipping, no fracturing, no depletion or diminution of any of those stones. So it's all a supernatural thing. But when you look at, again, this whole supernatural aspect here, it's saying that we become that medium for Hashem. So literally, we become like a supernatural occurrence in the natural when we're forming ourselves into a Mishkan from Hashem, for Hashem by being that medium through which Hashem can draw close and benefit us. And we do that by embracing the Torah and following His ways and developing a loving relationship with Him. Emphasis on developing a loving relationship with Him. This is not one that is uh, fueled by, okay, how do I keep up with you know my observance in accordance with everybody else? And so-and-so told me I'm not a legitimate Jew. And, well, Judaism has always been done like this, so therefore if you're not doing it like this, it's a problem. Like, that's not a loving relationship because how many times does a, a husband and wife, how many times do they ever, and I do understand that this happens, but think about the results. How many times do they base their love off of other marriages, off of their parents' marriages, and off of you know, marriages they see on TV or social media or whatever. It's like when you base your love off of somebody else's relationship, that destroys your relationship. It's called death by comparison. Your love is unique. And if you don't understand that, that's going to short circuit your system and create some problems for your Mishkan. And your Mishkan has to have the ability to stand on its own. It's it's a Mishkan that's fashioned by every Jew. So, going on, it says, we are not expected to do it alone. All God asks is that we make our contributions with a generous heart. Say generous heart. I was eating a pear today, and as I got closer to the core... I saw there was black in the center and I'm like, wait a minute, what? So I peel it and the thing is rotten. It's like molded and stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've been eating this. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Like, this is not good. I'm freaking out. Like, and I threw the pear away and I threw the other pear away. Like all the, the whole fruit bunch It's like, if one fruit's bad, the whole fruit's bad. Get it out of here. I don't want it. Thinking about the implications of you should know a tree by its fruit and that we're called to bear fruit for Hashem. All that just flooded me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's a chance for us to be edible fruit, but we can have rotten cores. And it's like if you don't have a generous heart, you're like edible fruit with a rotten core. Like no one's going to eat that. And by the way, there there were signs that this fruit wasn't good. The more I partook of it and that caused me to cease from eating it and throw it away. So if you think about your life, if signs of, okay, this is not good, and then you start peeling back more, and it's like, oh, this is, uh-uh, we're throwing it out. Get it out of here. And everything associated with it, get it out of here, you know? And obviously, my level of grace on uh, fruit is not really high, so I don't really want to give opportunity for the other pieces of fruit that look the same uh, to give me that, you know, hey, I'll, I'll go ahead and eat this one, too. 
and only to find out that core is rotten. Then go try the other one, and that core is rotten. It's like, I need a new batch of fruit. It's like, well, Baruch Hashem, because that's what it's like when you come to Hashem in Torah, when you come to Hashem in prayer, when you come to Hashem with acts of loving kindness, or go out from Hashem with that, you know, because you fill up on Hashem and then you output acts of loving kindness. And it's like you become a new batch of fruit at that point. And so people will delight in taking uh, fruit that doesn't have rotten cores. But anyway, so a gener not having a generous heart will be the tantamount to rotten core fruit. You want to be hardcore, but not rotten core. So be a hardcore, generous person. Like heart core, not hard, like hard heart. You want to get rid of your hard heart, have a heart of flesh, but you don't want a rotten heart of flesh. It says, with a sincere devotion to his cause, then the name of heaven will rest upon our work. This is where higher, further, faster really sets in. The resulting divine revelation will enable us. The resulting divine revelation will enable us to go further and accomplish more with each successful step, empowering us to reveal God's presence in the world to a greater degree than before. So you want to go higher and further and faster. You want to get beyond the tiredom and get really more deeply involved in the festival of Simcha and the season of our freedom and be able to do that untainted by uh, the pull downs of drama and all the kind of distractions that come at us while our generous heart that we give to God with sincere devotion causes the name of heaven to rest upon our work, which will bring about the revelation that will enable us to go higher, further, faster. And this is what happens as we embrace Hashem's Torah, following his ways, developing a loving relationship with him. And we're constructing a earthly home for Hashem, which is not about the space, but it's about being a medium for Hashem to be magnetized to. So that's the introduction to the Tadzave uh, Game Changer. Baruch Hashem. So Parsha Tadzave for the Basora reading, we'll be in the writings of Matityahu, uh, chapter 5, 13 through 20. And the beautiful part about this is this is literally going to connect to the beginning of our parsha where we're kindling the menorah. And again, remember the, the hidden wisdom and the image of Hashem. And this is the only uh, vestment of the Mishkan that could not be made by human hands. So with all of that in mind, let us go ahead and engage in Matityahu chapter 5. Goes on in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how shall it be made salty again? Now, I was reading something uh, yesterday about the salt and the flavor. And I can't remember where I read this. Probably is not important, but it was along the lines of salt losing its flavor. And it was saying salt can't lose its flavor. And where, what in the world was I reading? 
Um, I'm going to give myself a second here. Salt losing its flavor. It was some kind of parable. Hmm. Okay, probably not important. But uh, yeah, so we're just going to keep it moving. So how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot, underfoot by men. So just to kind of synthesize that verse and kind of where, where I was thinking I was thinking is that, you know, salt technically should not lose its flavor. However, when you have salt that's by itself, like a grain of salt, it doesn't really provide anything, you know, for, you know, the the meal, you know, for the happenings, for creation. Because, you know, like think of creation as a meal. If you put one drop of salt in it, just, you know, one person in it, and it's just like, what what really impact can that one person have? And obviously we have historical um, examples where one person has changed the whole fate of mankind. Mashiach obviously being the one of that, but, you know, people who've come up with different inventions and things like that. But the potency of that one particular granule of salt is is one thing. But if we don't have any potency and we're a single granule, this is kind of like, okay, what can that really affect? But if we think about us not upholding our mission and our purpose, which is typically what happens when people fall away from the derrick, fall away from the path, they stop being observant, they stop studying Torah, they stop davening, they stop being a person of acts and kindness, or acts of loving kindness. When you stop doing those things that Hashem has called us to do, you make yourself like salt that's lost its flavor, and you're doing nothing now but being trampled under the foot of men. And I can tell you that people who've you know, left our congregations before and they're now just kind of doing whatever they want to do. They're just kind of living lives of just fulfilling what they want to fulfill and it really having no, no flavor to it, you know, no impact. You know, if you're looking like everyone else around you, how are you really pulling up anything? You know, and that's our job as salt and light is to pull things up. Salt enhances flavor Light illuminates the room. It dispels darkness. So we have to remember that if we lose track of our mission, lose track of why Hashem has placed us in, you know, trials and tribulations, but he's given us his shalom, which, by the way, is the only vessel that can hold all the blessings. Uh, that's from the Midrash Shabbat. Like if we lose track of all that, then, uh, you know, it's not going to be good. But we're here and we got to work it out. And again, in the writings of Kepha in chapter four, he says that anyone who suffers in this world, in this life, is done with sin. And this is the mindset of Mashiach. Mashiach was without sin because, number one, he's the Torah made flesh. So obviously there's that. But he also showed us the picture of allowing ourselves to be people who are freed from sin, slavery and bondage by giving ourselves wholly in devotion to Hashem by being salt and light. And obviously I'm not a scientist, 
But I know the people who are, are are very familiar with light and who are very familiar with sodium chloride, aka salt, uh, then you obviously have some more uh, get you some information on that. So going on, it says you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, I think about the light of the menorah that the the way it's built, it should not illuminate anything. It's just kind of like it's a light ball. It's the light isn't going to go out. The branches are pointed towards the center. And it's just like, wait, the light is shining in on itself, but yet it's going out. And then you have the, the fact that the the windows of the temple were built in such a way to send light out as opposed to gather light in. So the menorah providing the light for the interior of the edifice that would be the image of God. So the light is inside and going out at the same time. And you think about Mashiach saying, if our eye is dark, which is the lamp of our body, then our whole body will be darkness. And so looking at our eyes, are we allowing our eyes to take in light as well as put out light? Because the way we look at people we either add light to their situation or we take it away from them because the way we have a dark eye is to buy is by being stingy, by being greedy, being like Belam, because he was the man who, who considered to have one eye. He could see only out of one of his eyes and, um, you know, thinking of the one eyed pirate kind of thing. And, you know, the the stereotypical picture of a pirate is, you know, a very grungy person who's selling the seven seas and trying to get all he can get, even if he has to kill somebody. So anyway, uh, not that all pirates are like that, but just to think of a small sect of pirates, tight cast. I mean, and again, pirate being a interesting word about thieving and stealing, but I digress. You can just see that, you know, when Mashiach looked at people, you know, his eyes caused changes for them. But when Balaam looked at people, he took from them. So are we are we changing people with the way we look at them or are we taking from them by the way we look at them? You know, it's really hard to talk bad about someone who you look upon with favorable eyes. It's like, no, I like this person. This person is awesome. And this is where the overlooking their faults comes in and, you know, being able to cause how you feel about them to be made manifest in them. You know, if you think good about somebody, something good will come from them. It may be just a little bit, which would mean Hashem, please increase our superpower so we can cause more goodness to come from people. <laughs> but anyway, so just a just a little drop on that can't be hidden okay if you're a city on a hill you can't be hidden the light that we shine because of who we are it cannot be hidden we who cover our hair and we wear zanut we dress zanut we observe the shabbat we eat kosher we do all sorts of other various things i always wonder to myself why do i always talk about kashrut and shabbat and zanut it's like because those are like among the most simple things but the most distinguishing things you know, not a lot of people cover their hair and then not a lot of people eat kosher and not a lot of people keep the Shabbat. So just by doing those three things right there, you've like set off all these like light bombs, you know. And so 
just kind of the go-to observances that you think, oh, I'm covering my arms, I'm covering my legs, or, you know, I'm not showing off my chest, you know, guys included, because, you know, there's the James Bond type thing, Fabio stuff. But, uh, you know, um, you know, keeping myself as a newt, and I'm not eating things that I shouldn't be eating. You're you're spreading so much light and you're adding so much salt to the earth, making lots of preservation, because one of the things that Midrash Rabbah brought down about the covenant Hashem gave to Abraham, Abraham was concerned, like, well, why, if you're giving me this covenant, well, what if someone else has a covenant that comes by that supersedes mine? You know, like the covenant you're giving me is different from the covenant you gave to Noah. And it's like, not that they were different, but the, the fact of the covenant of Abraham is like a next step up. And Hashem was like, no, your covenant is all about being a shield for, for the world. Like you're going to have the ability to produce offspring that are going to literally shield and preserve the world for the sake of the righteous. You will preserve places of wickedness that should be destroyed. I.e. the whole reason why Abraham went to Hashem to um, to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities, because there were five cities that were going to be destroyed. That's why he started with 50 and then he went down because think about five cities and you have 50 people. That's 10 people in each city, which is a minion and a minion is 10 Jewish men, 10 upholders of Torah. And if there were 50, none of those cities would have got destroyed. If there were 40, one of the cities would have got destroyed. If there were 30, two of them would have got destroyed. If there were uh, down, so on and so forth, you know, and so down to 10. If there were just 10 left, Sodom would have stayed standing. And it's like Sodom, the most wicked and probably the most corrupt out of all the cities would have been standing. I mean, you think about that, the power of being salt and light in the world, you bring about this preservation and this opportunity for just super ridiculous wickedness to uh, have an opportunity to come to the light, to come to truth, to be made new creations. When you think about the letter to Romans chapter one, verse 16, about being unashamed of the gospel, that is the power of transformation and redemption first to the Jew and to the non-Jew. Uh, you know, you think about, okay, the power of the word of Hashem is so amazing that it can take absolute vile wickedness, diabolicalness and turn it into righteousness and righteousness everlasting. This is the power of being salt and light. This is the power of Tedzave. Because, you know, the word Tedzave comes from the word for mitzvah, which is all about connecting. And you think about when you connect up the circuit, you cause the circuit to generate all that electricity, let it like let it flow through, which again, if you're connecting a light, you know, the switch and all that kind of stuff, you cause light to come forth. You connect sodium with chloride and you cause salt to be, come forth, you know, taking the elements and bringing and binding them together. It's like you're, that's what's happening. You're making these connections. So don't ever doubt, second guess, or back up, or swerve 
from your observance, no matter what level it is. Because one of the biggest, uh, for just put it all out there, one of the biggest lies is you're not good enough. Like, oh, you light Shabbat candles, but, you know, you cook on Shabbat. Oh, you're terrible. It's like, well, did you know you're not supposed to cook on Shabbat? How long have you been observing the Shabbat? You know, and all this kind of stuff. It's just kind of like, okay, so if you're lighting candles, this is your first or second or third Shabbat ever in your life. And someone tells you you're not good enough. Uh, besides punching them right in the mouth, um, one of the most beautiful things you can do is go, you know what? As a person who's never kept Shabbat before and I'm now lighting candles and I've been speaking with Hashem and, you know, considering where I've been and considering where I am, do you really want to talk to me about this right now? Because I could stop keeping Shabbat at your expense because you're telling me I'm not good enough. So I shouldn't keep Shabbat uh, because I'm cooking on it. And uh, since I'm doing that, you know, I might as well just not even light candles and not even think of Shabbat. So which one's worse? Light candles and cook on Shabbat because you've just started doing Shabbat or don't light candles and keep cooking on Saturday? I mean, where are you really going to go for that? And if you're the person who caused somebody else to jump back off the Shabbat ship, think about that, you know? And again, what would salt and light do? Salt and light would not discourage observance. It would encourage observance because why? When we have more observance, we have more salt and we have more light. And the beautiful thing about salt and light in God's kingdom, you can't ever have enough of it. In our earthly existence, we can over salt things. We can have too much light in the room. And it's just ridiculous. But in Hashem's kingdom, you can keep adding as much salt and you can keep adding as much light as you want to, but it ain't gonna, you ain't gonna overdo it. This is why the whole understanding of, man, if we convert the whole world, we're gonna have too many Jews. It's like, no, if we convert the whole world, we're gonna have the final redemption. Like Mashiach is going to have to come at that point because we're there. I mean, you know, it's just kind of like, all right, so what are we doing waiting around? Which is kind of the... The double-edged sword of the church is that they're bringing people to Mashiach, but then they're telling people, yeah, 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 this guy you came to, don't don't be like him, don't do what he said, and, you know, don't listen to him either. And change his name while we're at it, you know? Because if we change his name and we don't listen to him and we don't do what he does and we're not acting like him, then there we go. We're, we're good. So you can act just as evil as you did before you proclaimed this fake name and it'll totally be fine because you really know there's no difference between a bank robber who comes to believe in JC and continues to rob banks from any other bank robber that didn't come to JC and is still robbing banks. They're still doing the same thing. Only one is proclaiming a false deity's name and a false system of that deity because you realize everything that surrounds the JC name is a made up system that teaches us to forsake the Torah. This is why the Trinity exists. This is why the cross exists. This is why Sunday as a Sabbath exists. This is why all foods are clean exists. This is a whole 
construction of straw, because that's what it is, a straw man argument, because if you take this straw house to the house built on the rock, it's going to look really, really different, especially when the wind blows. Because when the storms come, and they will, and when the fire comes, and it will, which house is going to stand up? The house of straw or the house of fire? Because remember, the house of Jacob is the fire and Yosef is the flame. So when the house of Jacob sets on fire, it's like, oh, you set fire on fire. Oh, no, everybody freak out. Like, no, fire is like, oh, yeah, I know you. But then the house of straw is like, no, I don't know you and get away from me. Stop burning me. Stop touching me. And this is ultimately what's going to happen. And in the meantime, people who continue to get fed up with, okay, I want to talk about God. I want to study. I want to grow. But nobody else around me wants to talk about God. Nobody else around me wants to study. And when I begin to really try to get deeper and it starts looking like conversion, then people think I'm going to hell. It's kind of like, okay, so you think I'm going to hell because I want to study more about God and I want to talk more about God versus be in a place of quote unquote worship and talk about football games and what I'm going to do after I get out of here. I mean, really, what are we talking about? There's a famous statement that says, consider the source, consider the source of people who tell you you're not good enough. Consider the source of people who tell you like you're going to hell because you're being observant. Salt and light. Just think about it. What is salt and light really going to do? What is a city on a hill really going to do? What is salt with flavor really going to do? Think about something you've recently eaten that you thought was really, really amazing that featured flavoring in it. Salt, to be exact. Think about all of that flavor that you could taste and all the amazingness of how well it was prepared. Well, just take all the seasoning out, take all the amazing flavor out, and now think about what that dish could have been like. If the dish was so good that you can't really think about it, then, you know, Brukasham to you. Um, but just saying, it would be a really, really different experience of a meal if it didn't have all of that included into it. And again, existence is a very, very different thing for the person ourselves. Or, you know, the people around such and such person, if there is no salt and if there is no light, you're a person who doesn't enhance the situation, illuminate the darkness. It's going to be very different if you're adding to the darkness and if you're tearing people down, if you're calling people names, if you're cutting people off on the freeway. I mean, it's just kind of like, all right, so that's that's your difference here. Mishkan, no Mishkan. Think about it. Think about what would happen if the Israelites were in the wilderness and they did not have the Mishkan after the sin of the golden calf. Number one, the nations would be like, these people are a bunch of fools and they're wasting their time. Because the whole reason of the Mishkan is that it's called a testimony. That's why it's called the, 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 um, the tabernacle of testimony. Mishkan Edut, to be exact. And we're going to learn about that in Parsha Pekude and Vayakel about the Mishkan being a testimony. So stand by for that. 
But uh, you need to know right now that the whole reason for the Mishkan was to say, I forgave you for the sin of the golden calf. The whole reason for Mashiach being born was because Hashem was like, all mankind, I forgive for the sin of the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now we have this opportunity to cross over from death into life. But again, it's going to come through the testimony and for us entering into it. Because all mankind, Jewish or not Jewish, we all are going to die at some point. Bezrat Hashem, the redemption happens before then, but even then we still get changed in a twinkling of an eye. But still, we have to go through some process of the current condition that we're in being separated and brought back together in a renewed fashion. So when you really think about what is going on with the whole religion games and, you know, the idolatry and the, you know, corruption of theology and things like that. Who really has time for that? I don't. And I hope you don't. So how about we just do this? How about we just be salt and light and be people of the covenant who are actually tabernacles of Hashem? Because I think that would be probably the most best way to use our time. Most productive way to use our time. Verse 15 of chapter 5 of Matthew Yahoo says, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so it gives light to all the house. This right here is why being a Messianic Gentile and being a Noahide is a problem. Also, being an anti-missionary is a problem. Because you're taking the lamp and you're putting it under a basket or a bushel. Because why? You teach people, yeah, yeah, I know the Torah is all amazing and whatnot, but you don't need it. Okay, because you can just have your JC and just sit in the corner and be fine. Because when you're a JC follower, you don't really have to do anything other than tell people they're sinners and they're going to go to hell unless they believe in him. But yet, don't do anything. But you can you can talk all day, but you don't have to do anything. You can talk that talk, but don't walk that walk. So it's like, oh, so Yeshua, JC, as he's commonly referred to, he leads people into being lame and being deaf. Definitely not mute, but also being blind. But I thought he healed those people. But you realize saying I believe in him, you're able to speak, but you're not able to see. Because believing in him, you'd be able to look in the Tanakh, which is called the Holy Scripture, and you'd be able to see him, which would mean you'd have an active knowledge of him from the Torah. But yet you don't think the Torah is for today, so why even read it? And then you don't have to do anything, so you're going to walk a life or crawl or whatever through life, kind of doing whatever you want to do and whatever you see fit, looking no different from the nation's. And then you're going to be blind because you're not going to be able to see. You're not going to be able to see the truth. You're not going to be able to see, you know, the significance of Pesach and why it is completely different from Smeester. And why is Sukkot a thing? And why is Yom Kippur a thing? And why is Xmas not? You know, like all these different things will just pop and like they're like flares in your eyes and you'll be like oh my word but if you're blind 
you'll just hear the sounds, but you won't be able to see anything. And it's just kind of like, why is there so much noise in here? It's like, well, if you would have looked, you would have saw Mashiach, but you chose not to look. And so there's no light for you and you're not being salt. Anyway, that's what the bushel will do. And this is what happens when you put away of your observance. You hide the light. People who hide their observance and people who refrain from being observant are people who have their lamps under bushels. Because whether or not you observe the Shabbat, it's going to be there. Whether or not you eat kosher food, there's still going to be such thing as kosher food. Whether or not you keep any of the Yom Tovs, whether or not you read any of the Torah portions, guess what? They're still going to be there. And after you're dead and gone, they're still going to be there. And this is what we get tricked into the whole time we're living. Like, no, nah, you don't have to do any of that Jewish stuff, which Jewish stuff and biblical stuff are synonymous. Because how did we get the Bible anyway? From the Jews. We didn't get the Bible from the Christians. We got it from the Jews. Because even the part of the Bible that the Christians put together was composed by Jews. But anyway, since you don't want to do any of that stuff, when you live out your life the way you want to live, because if you don't live by the Jewish principles, by the Bible, then you will live a life that is apart from the Bible and apart from Jewish principles, which means you're going to live how you want to live, because now you're going to have to make up your own stuff. You're going to have to make up your own thoughts, make up your own theology, make up your own faith. Okay, and once you do that, you're going to live all that out and probably infect a lot of people on the way out who are going to have that same sickness and perpetuate that. This is why people who have grandparents and great grandparents who, whether they've been rebbies or whether they've been pastors or whatever, they still stay stuck in that one little cycle. Thinking, oh, yeah, this is how we've done it forever. And it's like, well, does it line up with the word of God? Well, no, it doesn't, but it doesn't matter because this is how we do. So, yeah, so you live all that out and the corruption continues to follow, but you're dead and gone. But yet the truth and the Torah and the salt and the light is still here. So do you want to touch yourself to something eternal or do you want to touch yourself to something that's going to perish and die and go away and affect people and keep them from the Torah and the light and eternal stuff? Because really, that's our choice. Because when you go into the next verse, it says the same way, let your light shine before men so that they see your good deeds, which is called Ma'asim Tovim. You said we talked Torah, Avoda, Chesed. Here's the Chesed part. The good works, the, the things of loving kindness, the acts of loving kindness. And did you know that if you go to the letter of Ephesus, chapter 2, Start in verse nine. It says it's not based on these good deeds so that no one may boast. What? What are we talking about? We're talking about our deliverance into covenant with Hashem. Did you know you you don't come into covenant? Did you know you don't become a Jew by doing good deeds? Did you know that? So when people say Jews work for their salvation, I mean, that's so far off base that it doesn't make any sense because in order for you to become a Jew, you have to convert. You have to immerse in a mikvah, get circumcised and all that kind of stuff, which 
for all intents purposes, are not eating kosher, keeping Shabbat, wearing tefillin, wrapping uh, with tzitzit and um, keeping the Yom Tovs. Like, that's not what brings you into covenant. Well, those things can be leads in the covenant, but what actually causes you to cross over from death into life, being a non-Jew into a Jew, is the conversion process, is the act of receiving the word of God and what he has done for you and causing the resurrection and the life to fill you now that you've been transformed and turned into a newborn babe, a new creation, born again, born from above, all of that. Now that that's happened, now you can get into this verse that says it's not based on deeds so that no one may boast. No one can boast about becoming a Jew because how do we even find out about Torah in the first place? Hashem. So we didn't put ourselves here. There's uh, the understanding of a turtle on a fence post. How in the world did that turtle get on top of that seven foot fence post? Just think about it. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like, all right. But anyway, verse 10, somebody had to put it there. All right. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, just like all the vestments of the priestly garments, all the vessels of the Mishkan, they were all workmanships. They were fashioned, created, formed. And when you become a new creation, you're fashioned, created, formed. Again, back to the pattern I've shown you on the mountain. Let me read that Bahaturim. Bahaturim, where you at? Bahaturim on deck. Look at this, y'all. This is this is ridiculous. I'm telling you, according to the pattern that I've shown you on the mountain. Hmm. I know I highlighted it. See if I can find it though. Boom, boom. All right, so it says, this is uh, verse 20, or chapter 26, verse 30. It says in uh, Shemot, you shall erect the tabernacle according to its manner, as you will have been shown on the mountain. Bahaturim brings down on this verse. Uh, it says that this word appears twice in the Tanakh here in this verse and also in Devarim 435 you have been shown in order to know that Hashem he is the God okay so it says this means that on the mountain you have been shown in order to know that Hashem, he is God, and there is none beside him. For he bent the highest heavens down unto the mountain and showed you that he alone is ruler in the upper realms and in the lower realms. And so... What it was saying is that somewhere I was reading about this, that we have to go according to the pattern that Hashem has showed us on the mountain. 
And if we ever get uh, thrown off by, you know, how we're supposed to live, what our, what is our life supposed to look like? It's all based on how Hashem showed us. So, you know, heavens on the earth, your will be done. Your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in Shemaim. Well, Shem bent all of that down to the earth on the mountain and showed us the pattern. He opened it up and revealed it to us. And so we could see it all. And that's what we're supposed to look like. And again, because we're each a Mishkan. So it says, for we are his workmanship created in Mashiach for good deeds. We literally have been thrown into the fire of the Torah, which is Mashiach. And out pops us as menorot, you know, as menorahs. And we shine forth good deeds because it says we're created for good deeds, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. So we're walking tabernacles, which is what Mashiach was, by the way. He was like a walking Mount Sinai. So back to Matityahu. Okay, so letting our light shine. So you can see our deeds, glorify our father who is in Shemaim. So literally, when you think about the menorah now, you can think about the light that comes off of it, shining out to the four corners of the earth. These are the good deeds that the Torah teaches us, which is the pattern that was shown on the mountain. Verse 17, do not think I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill in the understanding of rabbinic interpretation. You abolish the Torah by misinterpreting the Torah. You fulfill the Torah by properly interpreting the Torah. So you should know that's a Talmudic concept from the oral Torah. And then it also says, I may not tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or seraph, jot or tittle, the little markings on the Hebrew letters, shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things come to pass. Beautiful thing is the Torah and its current form, this is only one aspect of it. But the Torah is going to go back to its primordial form, which means before the heavens and the earth existed. So think about this. So Yeshua is basically saying the Torah is never going to pass away because even when the earth, even when the heavens and the earth did not exist, the Torah did. So. If the heavens and the earth pass away, the Torah is still going to be there. But because the heavens and the earth came from the Torah and because the heavens and the earth will be remade over again by fire, by the way, Kepha brings this down. And um, so, yeah, so it's it's not going anywhere. Just uh, something important to think about. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least commandments and teaches others the same shall be called least in the kingdom of Shemaim. Most people think, oh, well, since I don't do the Torah, am I going to hell? Well, it's like, well, that's not for me to decide, but that is something for you to take up with Hashem. You know, don't look at me for your salvation. Isn't it interesting how, you know, if you were a Christian before and now you're not because you're a Jew, like people look to you now for their salvation because they go, oh, so I'm going to hell because I'm not doing what you're doing. It's like, whoa, when did I become your God? So this should give us some uh, insight into 
the status change that you literally go through when you convert. Like conversion is a big, big deal. You know, this is why it's such a hot topic, you know. But remember, in the Torah, it says Abraham and Sarah left Haran with the souls that they had made. You literally become a made soul through conversion, like a remade soul. To the point that people literally come to you and seek salvation from you. As weird as that sounds. But remember, we're in the image of the king. And so it's just kind of like people think, oh, okay, so what? You're supposed to tell me I'm going to hell or not? It's like, no, I, I know I look like the king, but I'm not the king. And when the angels confuse Adam for Hashem, Hashem caused Adam to fall asleep. It's like, listen, there needs to be a distinction here. Y'all, I know he looks like me, but listen, I'm Hashem. I'm over here. You know, same thing. Do we really want to fall asleep because people think, you know, we look like the image of the king who is the one who's going to uh, bring the conviction, you know? And it's like, nope, that's not us. I know we look like him, but uh, yeah, so you should focus on the main thing. Make the main thing the main thing. Say no to nonsense. If your theology and if your beliefs and if your salvation is founded upon anything that's not in the word, probably should work on that. So breaking the least of the commandments is going to cause you to be the least in the kingdom. Really, what does that mean? I have no idea. Don't really want to know. Instead of focusing on being the least, though, how about this? But whoever keeps and teaches them, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there you go. So you really want to die and go to heaven? You need to live even better than a Pharisee and a Torah scholar, which means you need to get up on that Torah and henny die business. Okay, so. Uh, yeah, that's that's where the Basora portion ends this week. So going right into Ankylos, he says, et Israel, And you shall command the children of Israel that they shall take for you pure olive oil crushed to illuminate, to kindle the lamps of the menorah continually. I love it. Ner Tamid is continual lamp illumination. So if you ever wonder why we have that little flame above our ark in our synagogue, Sarshalom Synagogue, it comes from this verse, Parsha Tadzaveh. Think it's really amazing. It's Captain Yisrael's Torah portion. So the Rebbe of Sarshalom and Lapid, his opening statement is about being a Ner Tamid. And here we are with him being the founder of Lapid, which Lapid being a torch is a Ner Tamid. So, wow, way to line up the right candidate with the right mission and the right purpose and right illustration who was born during this tour board. Hashem is just awesome like that. Anyway, so some footnotes. The oil must be extracted from olives by crushing and not by grinding them in a meal so that it should be pure without any sediment. This is why when we go through specific challenges and struggles in our life, 
that they're a crushing procedure and not a grinding procedure. That there is a, a purification that is coming from this and it's going to remove all sediment. So that's the first thing. Also going down to Ankylos changes the singular of nair to the plural bo, bozinaya, which is lamps, to clarify that the lamp referred to in this verse is a general term for all seven lamps of the menorah. So there are seven lamps, but they're all called one lamp. Kind of like how we have seven days, but it's all called a week. And if you're a reader of the Shir Shel Yom, the song of the day, you'd understand that each day is called by a successive day of the Shabbat. There's a first day of the Shabbat, second day of the Shabbat, third day of the Shabbat, fourth day of the Shabbat, fifth day of the Shabbat, sixth day of the Shabbat, and Shabbat. So your whole week is literally called a Shabbat. Now, on the seventh day of that week, which is the only day that's called Shabbat, like by name and everything, it's not like a one of Shabbat, two of Shabbat. It's like it is the Shabbat. Yom HaShabbat. That uh, this is the day you don't work. But everything that we do in our week is all about the Shabbat, which is why everything we do in our 6,000 years of creation up until the point hastening redemption, up until the point in time the final redemption comes, it's all about the redemption. So if we live lives focused on the final redemption, which is the great Shabbat, then that right there will help us line everything up to come into unity, ultimately as several lamps becoming one lamp. Because the way the redemption comes is not by what we do on our own, but by what we do together. Kind of like the way we erect the Mishkan. It's not a, a lone wolf thing. It's a general, like everybody has to work together. So there are things that you can do that will bring redemption into the world. And there are things that I do that will bring redemption into the world. And so as all of us are doing that together, that's how we get the redemption into the world. It's called being salt and light. Next verse says daily. Okay, so daily is the continual. So another way to see the word for tamid is daily. This is why understanding the offering that is called the tamid offering, which was actually two lambs. So it should be called tamidim, but it's not. It's called tamid, just one. Because the two lambs are considered one, just like the two Mashiachs are considered one, just like the seven days of the week are considered one. Seven lamps of the menorah are considered one. You unify your week through the Shabbat, by the way. It is the central focus and the pivot of your week. Three days to the left and three days to the right. That is the Shabbat. That is the week. Okay, anyway. So as we're looking at all this, it says, according to the opinion of the sages, you can see Ramban, uh, Menachote 98b, the words... Le haolot ner tamid mean kindle a constant lamp would refer to the western lamp of the menorah, which would never be extinguished. Rashi, however, follows the view of Ankylos, who renders ner in the plural. See the previous note, and it says, and understands the verse referring to all the lamps of the menorah. Rashi therefore explains that the word tamid in this phrase does not mean constant, but regularly. 
we always have to keep our light kindled. Because when we think of salt and light, we think of light bulbs and light switches, but really it's oil burning lamps with wicks. And if you are, if you've heard the, uh, the meaning of Lepi video from the incredible Talmud, Professor Talmud, AKA Mikhail Nicholson, uh, then you'd understand there's an account in the book of Judges about the wife of, I mean, the husband of Deborah, who was called uh, Lapidot. And he took garments and bound them together and they became the wicks for the menorah that the priests used to light the menorah. And so the garments are our thoughts, our speech and our deeds. And so if we constantly have our thoughts, speech and deeds dipped into the oil of the Torah set on fire by the very words of the Torah. Now we're talking about kindling lamps for Hashem. And the Western lamp, by the way, is indicative of how Hashem is with us in exile. Like Mashiach says, I'm with you to the end of the age because the Shekinah is currently in exile with us. And so that lamp is still burning. But one day, maybe soon, all of the, the lamps will be burning, not just that one. Because all the other light is currently out, which is why the world is experiencing the darkness that it's experiencing. Because the lamp of the temple is not in existence right now, but we need it. And guess what? We have that Western lamp burning. And from that Western lamp, we can begin the process of illuminating the rest of the branches of the menorah. But anyway, it says that uh, in the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, the Mishkan, Outside the parochet, that is, by the Aaron of testimony, Aaron and his son shall arrange it. So, outside the Holy of Holies, which is separated from the holy place by the parochet, out in this area here, we have the uh, the test, the uh, the table of showbread, and we have the menorah. We also have the golden altar, but that's going to come later in discussion. But looking at our menorah, it says, Aaron and his son shall arrange it. Literally, Yesadar Yate refers to the lamp mentioned in the previous verse. However, Ankelos referred to it as the lamps in plural. Me'at Zori suggests that Ankelos understands the pronoun it as referring to the oil mentioned in the beginning of the previous verse. And Lechem Vesimla suggests that Ankelos may be indeed alluding to one of the lamps in particular in light of the Gemara's explanation of the words Lifne Hashem. So it goes on to say, but the other lamps are not before Hashem. This one lamp refers to the Ner Ma'ariv. The westernmost lamps. Yes, the word ma'ariv. Uh, it's ma'aravi, slika ma'arivi. But the word for ma'ariv is in there, like our nighttime prayer. That's the closest to Hashem, because we're that west. We we're basically emulating that western lamp in our ma'ariv prayers. So in the nighttime, as we're praying and studying Torah, 
We're like that Western lamp that's shining and being close to Hashem. And that's ultimately what we're like today in exile. As we've been dispersed throughout the earth, we're like that one lone shining Western lamp in the midst of all the nations. And one day Hashem is going to illuminate the whole thing and bring us all back home. Amen. So this closest to the Holy of Holies. So the Western lamp is closest to the Holy of Holies. So the tabernacle, the opening of it faces east. So as you enter into the tabernacle going towards the Holy of Holies, you're literally traveling from east to west. And so the menorah is doing the same thing. The menorah is like a east to west, but the Western lamp is closest to the Holy of Holies. So just to kind of give you a little description. So the menorah would kind of be like a mezuzah to your right, you know, as you're kind of walking in. And then you got your showbread on the other side, which would be like your Hanukkah. You know, because they say the mezuzah is on the right, the Hanukkah is on the left in the door frame when you're walking through. So kind of tying some things together here. But anyway, so you have this whole fact that the uh, it says the Holy of Holies, which is where the Shekinah dwelled. And then it says, going down a little bit, it should be noted that Ibn Ezra and Rabbi Avraham ben Harambam interpreted the words Ya'arok, Oto, differently than Ankelos, which means arrange it. They explain Ya'arok means he shall estimate, meaning the Kohen should estimate the amount of oil necessary for the menorah to remain lit the entire night. All right, Burgashim. So, how much oil is it going to take? And you think about the parable Mashiach brought down where there were the virgins waiting for the bridegroom to open the door. Some of them ran out of oil for their lamps. And the same thing for us is we're waiting for the redemption. We got to estimate how much oil we need. How can we go higher, further, faster? How can we continue to sustain until Mashiach gets here? You know? So that's arranging the lamps. So in the Midrash Shabbat 36.1, it brings us down uh, compliments of G. Shekel because he's getting into something that I want to share, but I want to start with this. But it's basically commenting on Tehillim 48.3, which says, um, doo -doo -doo -doo, a leafy olive tree with beautiful or leafy, a leafy olive tree, beautiful with shapely fruit. This is to be understood in light of what is written according to Jerusalem. So this is a verse about Jerusalem. It says, fairest, which is the word nof, uh, the fairest joy of all the earth. Again, Tehillim 48, 3. What is the meaning of fairest, which is the word nof? Nun, vav, fe. And it says, it is derived from a Greek word, for in the Greek language, they call a bride nymphe. And it says the word nof is derived from the similar word nymphe, 
the verse is saying Jerusalem is as beautiful as a bride. So there is your revelation passage where it says Jerusalem came down adorned like a bride. Okay. So in that passage of Revelation where we're seeing the new Jerusalem come down and it talks about the bride and it's like, who's the bride? It's like Jerusalem. Anyway, this is why reading Jewish literature is so amazing because you're not trying to focus on something, you're minding your own business and just reading. And then all of a sudden it's like, remember that one thing over here? That applies to that. Talk about a swerve and talk about a rabbi trail. Goodness. It says, why is Yerushalayim or the temple. Oh, come on now. Come on. I saw the new Jerusalem, but I saw no temple. I mean, seriously, more revelation stuff. Is this what we're doing right now? But the temple is called the joy of all the earth because not one person among the people of Israel felt troubled when the temple was standing. Goodness. Why is this so? For a person would enter the temple full of transgression. Say full. And say transgressions. Because it says you enter the temple full of transgressions. The footnote says, and hence be depressed. When you're super depressed, it's usually because you're full of transgressions. That is self-incrimination. And that is a very harsh statement that I just said. But I can tell you as being a person who is typically depressed, that is currently or that is usually the thing. Because... You have to look for mitzvot. You have to dig and dive for Hashem. You have to search out and seek out your joy and your happiness, your expressions of light and truth. Yes, you can go through sad times and mourning, but depression is a whole different thing. Depression and sadness are not the same. So anyway, for what that's worth, transgressions keep a person depressed so when we see people taking all these depression pills today it's like really you just need some mitzvot really we just need the temple i mean the jerusalem i mean the temple i mean mashiach i mean wait what what's going on because we're talking about the light of the world and mashiach did say he's the light of the world and but yet the light of the world is jerusalem the light of the world is the temple the light of the world is the menorah the light of the world is the torah the light of the world is the jew who's in the Torah, in the temple, in Jerusalem, and all that kind of stuff, i.e. Mashiach. So it says that you'd enter full of transgressions and you would bring an offering and thereby gain atonement for sins. There is no greater joy than this, for he would leave the temple in a state of being fully righteous. This is the explanation of fairest Noph joy of all the earth now that's just ridiculous but we're going to skip all the way down to the midrash saying okay so we got telling 48.3 but now we're gonna relate this to jeremiah and uh compare israel to the olive tree so now we're going to bring in the olive tree which is going to again bring us back to the menorah so the temple jerusalem Israel, the menorah, like all being the light of the world. Here we go. That is why it is stated in Yermiyahu, a leafy olive tree, beautiful with shapely fruit. This refers to the temple, 
Just as olive oil illuminates, so does the temple illuminate the entire world. As it is stated, nations will walk by your light. Yeshayahu 60 verse 3. And moreover, for this reason, the people of Israel were called a leafy tree by Yermiyahu because they illuminate all mankind with the light of the Torah. Talk about being salt and light. Metaphorically, with the light of the Torah and knowledge of God, which emanates from Jerusalem, where the great Sanhedrin set. Okay, so now we're bringing in the seat of Moses, because that's what the Sanhedrin is. The beauty mentioned by Yermiyahu is a reference to the temple and not Israel, to which the term beauty is applied in Tehillim 48.3. As the Midrash has established, the Midrash will now explain why the olive tree metaphor is applicable to the temple. But if you're following this all out, the olive tree and the temple and Israel, like Israel is compared to an olive tree and all of that. It's just kind of like, wait, what? So it's not, and it is. The light of the Torah with which the temple illuminates the entire world ultimately emanates from the Jewish people. Okay, so that's why. Because the Jewish people are the medium for the light, which is Jerusalem or the temple or the Torah or the Sanhedrin. And it says, i.e., from the Sanhedrin, and it says, thus, Jeremiah was referring not only to the temple, but to the people of Israel as well. So, when we do all that Jewish stuff, and when we follow the oral Torah, and we quote from the sages, that's how you become a light of the world. So, I cracked open Telling 48.3, and... It says, Ferris of sights, joy of all the earth, Harzion, by the northern side of the great king city. Ferris of sights, Yefe Nof, which again, if we go back to the Midrash Shabbat, we're saying a beautiful bride, because Yafe comes from the word for Yofi, which is the word for beautiful, cute, nice. It says the Nof follows, the translation of Nof follows Menachem, cited by Rashi, Ibn Ezra, and Radak, who render it as section or area. So now the bride is considered a section or area, because again, Nof, bride, which is the Greek way to say Nof, okay? Uh, it says the sages, and okay, not the, the English translation of the Greek meaning of Noph is bride. There we go. Goodness. The sages, Baba Batra, 158b, said, in praise of the atmosphere of the holy land, the very air of the land of Israel makes one wise. Sephorno brought that down. And I love the fact that, you know, when Captain Israel and his household went to Eretz Israel, literally one of the things I asked them, how was the air? <laughs> he said, cold. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. How, how was, how was the air? Like, so level, come on, you know, but anyway, just cause that's always what I wonder about. Cause this air is supposed to be like making a person wise. And I pay close attention to the Aliyah day as broadcasted from Eretz Israel. 
like the other day from Yerushalayim, and especially when he was in the Galilee, like you're going to have the Lapid in Galilee again. Seriously, I mean, come on, man. But you could see literally just some of the illuminating things that would come down in those Aliyot. And you're just like, man, that's ridiculous. It was like on a whole nother level. But they're still on a whole nother level because he continues to just, it's insane. I don't even know how people argue on the comments, you know, because it's like, not that the people who are listening are the arguers, but from time to time, people jump on there and just want to like argue and just stir up stuff. And it's just like, you are wasting your time. So don't just listen to the Aliyah and you'll be good. Shouts out to Hazila, by the way, the um, the Shomer version of Rescue. Uh, she was I want to go back to this drop. She shared this thing and I was like, oh, my goodness. Um. Uh, it was on the Aliyah today, and I was just like, man, I should have took a screenshot, though. See if I can find it real quick. So I'll go to the Aliyah day, go through the comments. Oh, yeah. So I was talking about how we don't need a mediator. So this is what Hazila shared. She said, so Korak was the one who said we don't need a mediator. We are all holy. We can all directly approach didn't work out so well. I I I was just like I wanted to just throw my phone, but the Alawadeh was on it, so I couldn't. But anyway, you think about this whole idea of you know take away the Kohen Gadol, take away the Levites, you know take away the Torah, and think that you can just be you and Hashem, like no connector, no adapter, no you know transference place, and it's just kind of like it's not gonna work out very well. You're gonna have literally you know, thousands and millions of people entering into the Holy of Holies? Don't think so. Only the Kohen was allowed in the holy place, first of all, and then only the Kohen was allowed into the Holy of Holies. So, uh, and one of the things that Rabbi GQ brought down was that we see that the uh, the Kohen is considered the most trusted of Hashem's household because the... Uh, the Holy of Holies and the Mishkan was considered to be the bedroom. And when there's intimacy in the bedroom, it's only the husband and the wife there. So for what that's worth, just to point out the dynamics here of the roles, like you have Israel, you have the Levites, and you have the Kohanim. Only the Kohanim are allowed in the bedroom. You know, so just... Think about that. How many people do you allow really to come into your bedroom when you host them at your house? You know, you don't just let anybody walk in your bedroom. So when people talk about the Hebrews verse, yeah, we can enter boldly before the Lord. It's like, really? Because you're not exuding the attitude of one who's trustworthy to enter in before the Lord. Might want to rethink your statement. Anyway, joy of all the earth, which is mesos kol ha'aretz. And um, when you look at that, it says, what manner of joy did Yerushalayim offer? A man arrived in a city deeply troubled by his burden of sin in the temple. He brought the appropriate offering and received atonement for his sins. Thus, he left cleansed and joyous. Furthermore, the communal offerings brought blessing to Yisrael and and say and 
the entire world. The sacred atmosphere of Yerushalayim is conductive to producing great scholars who guide the world toward truth, which is the epitome of joy. Uh, probably need to change my name then. <laughs> no, I don't need to change my name. That would be me uh, cowering out. And I cannot do that because I'm Shomer Man. I do not cower out. And I will not cower out. Because now we just read that the epitome of joy is truth. All right, Met Shomer Man. <laughs> you got work to do. I should be much more joyful. This is the season of our joy. Yay, Adar. Woo! Look at me being joyous. <laughs> wow. This is ridiculous right now. Okay. So, yeah, the epitome. So, joy comes from truth. Truth is the epitome of joy. Mm. Mm-mm. Well, there's that. So, uh, so yeah, Tadzabe. And I want to finish, I guess, with, um, with this, because Purim is coming up, and it'd be great. So Parashat Tadzabe and Purim, you have to know that Purim is, this is from Lakute Torah. Purim is a memorable day in the life of every Jew. Indeed, its unique character is not merely a personal feeling, but one echoed by our sages as well, who maintain that in the future, all holidays will be nullified with the exception of Purim. And that goes to say, by the way, extra commentary on this, that um, it's Purim will be so elevated that it's as if the other holidays don't exist. Which is again why Captain Israel is so big on Purim. It's like we're we're already a step ahead of the game as far as that goes. So the reason for this reverence is because Purim because on Purim we revealed the a part of our relationship with Hashem that had never been seen before, even at Matan Torah. So we thought the giving of the Torah was something like Parsha Yitro, but it's like, no, 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 that was nothing compared to Purim. And then I want to go on to say that the altruistic display of self-sacrifice resulted in revealing the essential bond between Hashem and the Jewish people. And for this reason, the holiday of Purim will never be abolished. And as this revelation occurs anew each year on Purim, it is celebrated on a level that differs from all other holidays. Purim is the time for the Jew to engage in his essential bond and unity with Hashem, which, by the way, is Tedzave, essential unity and bond with Hashem, Zav, connection, Tedzave, and you shall connect and bond with Hashem. And it says, and the source of his bonds permeating manifestation in his service of Hashem throughout the year. Baruch Hashem. May we be salt and light and may we bring about the redemption speedily in our days. Until then, let's be joyous and change the game. 
Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, vekaye olam natabetokeinu. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha Torah. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai.